2 Kings 18 this morning. For those of you in the Facebook world that didn't get to hear me the first time. Well, luckily this week we didn't get very far before we figured out we had a problem. So, 2 Kings chapter 18. The title of our lesson this morning is Faith and Courage. And before we get too far into our lesson this morning, uh, for those of you that are physically here, uh, some of the handouts we passed out a while back that list the kings uh, are on the table uh, back over there in the dining room. Uh, if anybody needs another copy of them, they're over there. Because sometimes we go through all these kings and it's hard to keep them straight in your head, which is why we have uh, these pieces of paper. So you don't have to. Uh, that way you're like, now, where was he at? Which king was he? And you can go down one of those lists and look. One of them is a lot of dates and uh, some more details about the history. The other one adds information about the prophets. Uh, which prophet was prophesying during which reign of the kings uh, and so forth. I try to mention that during these lessons, but sometimes I might have one slip through the cracks. Does anybody need one? Can we hand them to him? <clears throat> so, if you don't see one of the prophetic books listed there on that second sheet, it's going to be because it's a um, post-captivity book, right? Like they prophesied after Israel and Judah were taken into captivity. And so hopefully those will be a help to you so you're not having to try to keep a thousand different names in your head. 47 J's and 57 H's and man that's just a lot. I remember last week we were going through name after name after name and it was like who, when, what? So hopefully that'll be a help. Uh, let's go ahead and get started in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Uh, twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign. And he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places, and brake the images, and cut down the groves, and brake in pieces the, bra the bra uh, brass and serpent, that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. He smote the Philistines, even unto Gaza and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. Basically whooped him up one side and down the other. So we see number one this morning is the reign of Hezekiah. And we see a sort of summary of the kind of king he was. There's a few specific statements that were mentioned I wanted to talk about. The first of which was that it said, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And if you've been following along in this series, you'll know how rare a thing that actually is. 
one king after another after another did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, when it talks about doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord, it talks about a few specific things he did. Uh, there in, I believe it's verse 4. Yeah, in verse 4 it says, firstly, that he removed the high places. Now, does anybody know what they were doing in these high places? We kind of talked about it before, but it's been a while, so I won't fault you if you don't remember. Aren't they, uh, like, doing sacrifices and stuff there? Sure, yeah, you know. exactly. Uh, the high places, it was like an open-air shrine, usually erected on an elevated site of some sort, like on top of a hill or in a mountain somewhere. Uh, and the uh, Canaanites, which is who we, not we, but the Israelites inherited that, I know, inherited that uh, tradition from, uh, the high places served as shrines of the Canaanite fertility deities, uh, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, uh, which is a Semitic goddess. And so that's what they were doing uh, in these groves, was they were worshiping these Canaanite gods and goddesses. So Hezekiah came along and he removed the high places. They took down the altars. They would have altars, they would have statues, and they would have pillars. And these pillars had specific symbols on them. And when it was a generic high place that was meant to worship any sort of these uh, Canaanite deities, it would have all kinds of different symbols on these pillars. And Hezekiah came along and took them down and had them destroyed. Which is what it means when it says, and break the images. The images are the images of false gods and he had them destroyed. And then it said, and cut down the groves. Now the groves were a little bit different. They weren't necessarily a place of worship per se, but the groves, uh, it was, we know what a grove is, right? It's a small uh, wooded area, orchard, or like a little group of trees, basically. And these specific groves were consecrated to these particular gods that they were worshiping didn't necessarily have to be Canaanite gods. It might have been gods that other uh, countries were worshiping around them, right? And they would build up these groves and they would carve their names or their symbols into the trees and they would consecrate that grove to that false god. So what Hezekiah did was he cut down the groves and had the trees destroyed. Uh, and then it also says that he broke in pieces the brass and serpent that Moses had made. Now this is really interesting because evidently we have moved on in Israel's history. This is beyond the point where they're worshiping the golden calf. Right? That that fad has passed on. Uh, it was started all the way back, uh, you know, by Jeroboam who raised it up so they wouldn't go into Judah to worship. Well, that's not a problem anymore because Israel's been led into captivity, right? Israel's not really a country anymore. That's just Judah, and Judah never worshiped the golden calf. That was always an Israel thing. Now that Israel's in captivity, they don't do that anymore. But they've replaced it with something even more interesting. Do we remember the story in, I believe it was Exodus, the people, they're wandering the wilderness, they're complaining about their situation, which, I mean, to a point we say, come on guys, stop complaining, you know, but how would we be? You know, if you were wandering a wilderness with no house, you know, your food showed up because God just magicked it on the ground. Amen. 
you know, and which is great, but you would be worried every night that it wouldn't be there the next morning. So we take a lot of security in the idea that we can afford to provide for ourselves, right? We've got money in the bank, we can buy food, we can take care of us and our loved ones. So how terrifying would it be every night to go to sleep wondering if there was going to be food for your family? So a lot of this, you know, I wonder how we would be if we were wandering the wilderness. I doubt we'd be very much better than they were. But they were murmuring again. But this time they took it too far. They're murmuring against Moses. They're murmuring against the Lord. So God sends fiery serpents to the children of Israel. Any of this ringing any bells? The fiery serpents come along and they bite the children of Israel. And they start to get sick unto death. And so Moses goes aside and he prays for Israel. And God tells him to fashion a brass serpent upon a pole. And he's to lift up the serpent... And everybody who looks upon the serpent when he lifts it up is healed. And they're, they're better. They're good. And the, the fiery serpents go away. Jesus in the New Testament said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Talking about himself. And that's when he goes to talk about, that's where John 6, 3.16 comes in that all we who look to the Lord for salvation find it in Him is the idea He's going to. We need to lift up the Lord so that He can be looked upon for salvation and people can find it in Him. Uh, but evidently what's happening in this time here in 2 Kings 18 is they have taken this ancient relic that was Moses' uh, brass serpent and they're now worshiping it. They've set it up, I assume, in some sort of a shrine or something because it says they're burning incense to it. Right? And uh, when Hezekiah goes to destroy it, he calls it a special name. Uh, he calls it Nehushtan. And the word Nehushtan, it just quite simply means... Uh, I've lost my place here. Hang on. There it is. Nehushtan quite simply means the copper serpent of the desert. That's all, it, that's all it means. But that's the name he gave it was Nehushtan. They were worshiping Nehushtan. But he had that destroyed as well. And that's very interesting to me. Because another thing we have a tendency to do is put a lot of stock in relics. Right? In ancient things. I mean... Uh, even to a point, I enjoy going out and antique shopping. You know, that can be a lot of fun. But how many centuries have people been looking for the Holy Grail? Right? How many centuries have people been looking for the Ark of the Covenant? Like they made a movie about it called Indiana Jones. About looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Because that is the archaeological coup de grace. That is the pinnacle. Finding that is finding the most ultimate thing. How many years have Bible scholars been searching for Noah's Ark? You know, some people think it's over here. Some people think it's over there. Some people think it's on that mountain. Some people think it's on that mountain. But we've been searching for it. Because we place so much stock in relics. And I tell you, this is picturesque of what Israel is going to do later because they take the picture and they worship the picture more than they do what it pictures, right? 
because they've got Moses' law, right? And they're going to the letter of the law. And then Jesus shows up, the, Mess the Messiah appears, who the law is trying to point them to. And he's like, hey, guys, I'm here. And they're like, hang on, we're staring at this picture of you. <laughs> it's like, you don't need the picture. I'm right here. That's, that's cool. Hang on. And that's what they do. They're so focused on the pictures, they miss the point of the picture, which is what it pictures. Imagine, if you will, a man and a woman getting married. Let's say it's Josh and Ryan's wedding day. You don't mind if I pick on you a little bit, Josh, do you? No. Okay. Not normal. Yeah. You should be used to it by now. I am. Yeah, good. Okay. I'm a big brother. I'm allowed. So, it's their wedding day, and they've got their set up, and they're there in front of me, the preacher who married them, and they're getting married. And uh, they have set up behind Ryan is a picture of Ryan, and behind Josh is a picture of Josh, right? It's just kind of picturesque. Well, it comes time to say the vows, right? But every time Josh goes to say his vows, instead of looking at Ryan, he looks at the picture. He might say, oh, well, maybe he's a little bashful. If you say that, you don't know Josh, but maybe he is. And then it comes time to kiss the bride. It goes over, passes Ryan right up, grabs the picture, and kisses it. You'd say, this guy's weird. We're pretty funny, though. <laughs> then it comes time to leave the reception, go to the honeymoon. They open, Josh goes to walk the car, open up the door for Ryan, throws the picture in the passenger seat, shuts the door, gets in the driver's seat, and takes off and leaves Ryan standing on the sidewalk. You'd say he's outside his mind. That's what they've done. They've left Jesus standing on the curb and carried off with what he what is picturing Jesus. It's a dangerous thing that even lives on today in Christianity. The Church of Christ teaches us that baptism is what saves people. When literally the Bible teaches us that baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of, you guessed it, Jesus. If you need further proof, you can look at the thief, the thief on the cross. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to jump down and get baptized. You need further proof? Jesus got baptized. I'm about 100% sure there was no sin needed to come off of him in the baptismal. Yeah. Baptism is a picture. But we get so caught up in the pictures, we miss what it pictures. And that's what they did. So that's why Hezekiah broke down that brass serpent. So he's doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. It said also about him, we read a second ago, that he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Right? He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. It also said, after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. And that's really saying something very special. What it's telling us is Hezekiah is the last real good king Israel will have. He's the best final king Israel's going to have. He's got more faith than any other king that is to come after him. That's an amazing thing. It's also a tragic thing. Because you would hope that Hezekiah would have great faith, but that also his lineage would continue to have great faith after him. How is it that 
the father can have such great faith and then his son has no faith. How is that possible? Because an entire generation leaves the generation behind them in the dust behind them. Because they're not interested in the children. They're interested in their generation, in their people. It's exactly what happened in the book of Joshua. Joshua himself is about to pass away. He's warning them of what they need to do. And then the book of Joshua fades. We come into the book of Judges. And the Bible says that a new generation came up that knew not the Lord. How is that possible? There were standing stones. They were meant to walk their children by and say, God, Jehovah Elohim, brought us through here. The God of Israel brought us through here. You know what happened? They didn't do that. They left the kids behind. You know, there's a lot of churches you can go to. And when you go to them, you're going to hear them say something like, Oh, children are very important here at our church. You're going to hear them say, we, we put a lot of stock in our children's ministry. We believe that children are the future of this church. But they don't believe that. And they're lying to you. You know what they believe? They believe that the wallets of the parents are going to continue to fund this church. And if they can convince you that they care about your kids, then they'll, got, they'll get you. That's what they'll do. Because when push comes to shove, they're not going to give one iota about kids who don't have any money to tithe. I've worked in ministries of pastors who said the very thing I just said. And in a few years' time, they had us running uh, children's programs in the back alley. Because they sold off the children's section of the church uh, to save some money. I've been part of children's programs uh, that died off when financial hardship came because the kids were less important than the adults. Because the adults can tithe and the kids can't. You will never find me treating our children's ministries less important than our adult ministries. We have two kids. Both of them are mine. And they're the only two kids that have been coming to this church for quite a while. And before that, quite a while even then. In the very beginning. But we've never not had a children's ministry. We've never not had a children's Sunday school class. We've never not had a children's church. It would be very easy for me to not do that. It's just my two kids. No one's going to care. No one's going to say anything if I decide to leave them in big church. No one's going to care or say anything if I decide not to have... Uh, a children's church program at 11 o'clock for them because it's just my two kids but we have never not had children's ministries here because even though they're two kids and even though they're my kids and there'd be no consequences for me canceling it I could save a good chunk of money by doing that I'm not going to because I don't want what happened to Hezekiah's kids and what happened to, to the generation that came up after Joshua to happen to Faith Baptist Church Right? Because there's a generation coming up after us that need to know God and we cannot afford to leave them behind. This church is what's called an independent Baptist church, right? We understand that by and large. And an independent Baptist church is a dying church nowadays. You go to any other independent Baptist church in the world, it's going to be filled with elderly people which is a very good thing. I'm very glad for elderly people. They're wise. They're a great asset to any church. But you should have a range of age within your church. You should have your senior saints, let's call them, 
they're the seasoned vets. Then you should also have some mid-aged Christians. You should have some Christians that are in their 20s. You should have some kids in your church. But in independent Baptist churches, it's only ever those older generation. That's all you ever see. And all the ones younger, my generation, they've left those churches completely. Why? Because they have not invested in the generation before them, just like we see the mistake being made here in the Bible. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, but after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. That is not a good statement. That's a tragedy. Let's learn from the mistakes of the generation before us, and let's invest in the future of Christianity. But then it also says something that is truly tremendous. It says, nor any that were before him. He trusted in the Lord more than anybody that came before him. That's a huge statement. You know the kind of kings that came before Hezekiah? Like David? Like Solomon? There were some really tremendous kings that came before Hezekiah. But the Bible says that he had more trust in God than any of them. That's going to be an important thing to remember later. His trust in the Lord exceeded everybody else's. Remember that. Then it also said he claved to the Lord. He claved to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I imagine almost like um, when me and my family go to the grocery store and it gets really crowded and my kids get a little nervous, they have a tendency to cling to you, cling to me a little closer than they normally do. That's the way a kid who's you know a little nervous and anxious about a situation, that's what they're going to do. They might even hug the leg, you know, they might ask you to pick them up and hold them because they're cleaving to their parent, right? That's what I imagine here with Hezekiah. He's learned to cleave to the Lord. He's learned to hang on with for dear life to God. Right? He's very close to God. He's made it a habit in his life of talking to the Lord and listening to what the Lord has to say to him. He's cleaving to the Lord, uh, not just in mind or in action, but in heart. Because it says he departed not from following him, but kept his commandments. He followed the Lord. He had faith. He trusted the Lord, but also he kept the commandments of the Lord. That takes some work. It takes some brain power, too, because you can't follow a commandment you don't know exists. And in a country like ours that has Bibles around every corner, pretty much, I mean, you could go to Dollar Tree and get a Bible for, yeah, a dollar. And in a, a society like that, there's no excuse for not knowing what God wants us to do. He's written it down for us. How would you feel here in school... And your teacher said, tomorrow, we're going to have a quiz. It's going to be 50% of your grade. That's a nervous moment, right? But then imagine that teacher says, here, I've written down all the answers to the test. Here they are. You bring these with you tomorrow, and you use them when you take the test. You'd say, shoot, this class is easy. I might not even have to show up ever again. 50% of my grade, he handed me the answer. That's what God did. 
Life can be tough and it can be confusing and it can be hard, but he's literally written down the answers for us and handed them to us. All we have to do is use it. In order to keep his commandments. His commandments aren't his commandments just because anger is black. God forbids us from doing the things that we shouldn't do because they're not good for us. They will hurt us down the road. Sin is not free. It costs you something. But also, it's been talking about how he trusted the Lord, how he claimed the Lord, how he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But then we see a statement that talks about how the Lord was back to him. It said the Lord was with him. Not just that he was with the Lord, but that also the Lord was with him as well. He prospered whithersoever he went, it says. Often the Lord's blessings for a king involve his enemies. Right, so if we're talking about a king prospering, we're talking about maybe economic growth, right? That might be a way that a king is prospered. Uh, we might be able to talk about political prowess. That might be another way a king prospers. But usually in these times, the way a king prospers is by triumph over his enemies, right? Even some parts of uh, Africa today. A king can only remain a king so long as he's been undefeated in battle. If a king ever loses a battle, he loses the right to that throne. That's the way it works in some tribes in Africa. In the Christian life, we sometimes receive blessings of a similar nature. When we are able to rise up over our enemies, when we're able to beat our enemies, that's a victory. That's a blessing from God. But our enemies are not their enemies. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not a person. Your enemy is not a person. There may be somebody you can't stand. There may be somebody, every time you see their stinking face, you get fuming. Somebody who you, you know they're coming and you're like, well, I am not going to be there. I can't stand that loser. God, what a jerk that person is. That is not your enemy. You may have been cheated and done wrong and messed over by somebody you thought you could trust. And they burned you and hurt you and used you and left you for dead. That person is not your enemy. They may attempt, or they may decide that you are their enemy, but the same cannot be true in reverse. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Principles matter. And I'm not talking about the person that runs the school. I'm talking about your principles, your morals. We wrestle against principalities. We wrestle against people moralizing immorality, excusing the unexcusable, against powers. Might makes right, they believe out there, but they forget there is one mightier who has decided what is right 
long before their little power came into play. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world, that Satan himself is your enemy. He hates you. He wants you dead. He doesn't, I'm sorry, he doesn't want you dead. He wants you suffering and miserable and in pain. And then when he's had his fun with you, then maybe he'll let you die. He hates you as much as anybody can. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is what we wrestle against. This is the true enemy. The Christian has three enemies. The world, the devil, and our own flesh. What do I mean by our own flesh? I mean that other part of your mind that is always trying to convince you to do something you know is wrong. Psychology has terms for it I won't bore you with this morning, but the Bible refers to it as our flesh. That sinful part of us that just wants to do what we want to do and just don't care about what right and wrong is. Just do what I want to do. That is our flesh. But he prospered whithersoever he went, and he was victorious against his enemies, and we can have the same kind of victory in our lives, in the Christian life as well. And I'll tell you, victory over these enemies is no small feat. It's no anecdote. Victory over these enemies brings you what you've been looking for your whole life. It brings you happiness. It brings you a sense of peace and calm, even in the midst of a storm like we're going through today. It gives you all the things you never realized you needed. But notice what it said. It said, uh, He rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Israel was blessed by simply being able to resist their enemy's attempt to make them servants and slaves. That was a blessing. Because look at what just happened to Israel. You know, we too are blessed by the Lord when we're able to resist the servitude of our enemies as well. You know what makes the servitude of our enemies so dangerous? Is you have no clue you're actually serving the enemy. You think you're fine. You think you're living the Christian life. You have no idea you're serving the enemy. You're living under a gray cloud. You're almost zombified, living day to day, going moment by moment, not even realizing how you got there. Wow, is it Thursday already? You ever said that? We live serving the enemy and it takes the color out of life. We live serving the enemy and it grays the skies. It makes life hard and painful and we don't even realize it. But when we stop serving the world, because he makes it sound like I'm doing what I want to do. Right? So I'm not serving him, I'm serving myself. But you're serving the devil, you're serving the world. And it makes you a slave to it. And it robs you of your liberty. When you serve the Lord, 
and you live life the way he wants you to, not the way some pastor barked at you from atop a pulpit, but the way God wants you to, it puts the color back into life. You live every moment wide and awake. It's a blessing from the Lord to be able to resist the servitude of our enemies. Then also said he smote the Philistines. Holy cow, when was the last time we heard about the Philistines? Well, it's been a long time. I think the early years of Solomon might have been the last time we've heard about the Philistines. That's been a long time ago. We see an old enemy rearing its ugly head. And we see a righteous king victorious over that enemy and in the power of God doing so. It's a tremendous thing when we rise above our old enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because it says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That God can give us victory over these enemies. And what a tremendous victory it is. He smote the Philistines. And then we come to number two this morning. The invasion by Assyria. And in verse 9 of 2 Kings 18, it says, It came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmanser, king of Assyria, Oh, okay. The Shalmanser king of Assyria came up against Samaria and besieged it. So this is a, a sort of summary of when Israel went into captivity. And at the end of three years, they took it, even the sixth year of Hezekiah. That's the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. Samaria was taken. That's a big moment there. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Hala and in harbor by the river of Gozon, and in the cities of the Medes, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and would not hear them, nor do them. Now, it says in verse 13, Sennacherib, or in the fourth year of King of Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria uh, to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's house. And at that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Wow. We're going to double back to that. There's a few things that we just read I wanted to touch on. First, it was in verse 19 when it says, what con? Or, I'm sorry, I'm uh, a little bit ahead. Verse 14, wherein it says, 
Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria. And then it says, saying, I have offended. Return from me that which thou puttest on me, I will bear. So Sennacherib comes in. The king of Assyria takes his cities, begins to surround Jerusalem. And Hezekiah sends word to this king and says, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I clearly hurt your feelings somehow, and I'm going to own up to that. You know, I, I want to be a big enough person to admit when I was wrong. And uh, whatever you feel like I owe you, that, that's fair. I'll just do that. That's fine. The man just came into his backyard and kicked his dog. He's going to apologize? Uh, it was easy for Hezekiah to trust God when the battle was against the Philistines, wasn't it? But when the mighty Assyrians, led by the infamous, infamous Sennacherib, came to their borders, King Hezekiah lost his faith and gave in to fear. Remember when it said he trusted God like no other king before him? What happened to that? Where's all of that at? He gave up. He just decided, you know what? I just want to keep the peace. I just want to keep the peace. That's fine. But no, there are some things worth fighting for. There are some battles worth fighting. There are some things more important than keeping the peace. I'm not about keeping everybody happy if it means sacrificing what's right. Let it be known right now, there will never be a member of this church that I'm going to change the message for. Because I care about each of you dearly, but I care about God more. I care about the person watching this I've never even met before. But I'm not going to change what I say because it hurts somebody's feelings. I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt somebody's feelings. And I think that's a craft we can all work on. But I'm not going to avoid saying the truth. Because somebody came into my yard and kicked my dog and they're going to be offended if I get mad about it. I'm going to get mad about it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. That's what Jesus said. I am not come to send peace on the earth. He says, I came not to send peace, but a sword. He said, I am not come to help you get along with your neighbor. I am come so that when your neighbor attacks the Lord, you have a verbal response. You have the, the verbal plenary spoken word of God. You have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I came not to, to bring peace and coexistence. I came to bring a sword. Get ready for battle. Defend yourself. Ready or not, here I come. Then it says, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's house. He gave him all the silver and all the gold. He was taking the gold off of the doors. He was taking the gold off of the pillars inside of the temple and giving them to the king of Assyria. An absolute weakling. Look at what they had to give up because they were too afraid 
to go to battle in the name of the Lord. We may have to make this a two-parter. <laughs> I've got four minutes left, but I think I'm going to finish on time if I finish with number two today. Hezekiah may have had the faith of David, but he certainly didn't have his courage. 1 Samuel 17. Can we go back there for a minute? Because I want to remember what it's like when somebody stands up in the power of God. 1 Samuel 17, verse 44. For sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. The Philistines said to David, Thou comest to me, and I will give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. I will give thy, the, I will give thy carcasses of the hosts of the Philistine this day unto the fowls of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. That's a king. We need Davids. We're too busy tripping over each other apologizing. We get so ferociously angry over the topic of a mask. <clears throat> now I realize what the mask represents, but do you realize it's a mask? We don't talk about religion or politics. Why? Because we don't know how to argue with each other. We can't express an opinion. Because people feel as though if you don't agree with their opinion, you've insulted them to their face. We're too busy warmongering. We're, we're creating enemies where none exist. We're creating enemies of our own brothers, of our own countrymen. I'm not your enemy because I disagree with you. And what happened is nobody taught us how to argue with each other. Nobody taught us how to sit down and have a conversation because the moment it gets heated, we're meant to stop. It doesn't exist at all or exists in some completely controlled environment like a, like a, a debate class. Nobody taught us how to sit across from a table and argue with each other. You're not going to agree with one another. That's not the goal. The goal is understanding. I can respect you if I understand you, and I can't do that if we don't talk it through. We need to be taught how to use the sword of the Spirit. It's a sword, but what is it? It's words. It's the Word of God, right? Words. The Bible says that the, the tongue can no man tame. That we tame wild beasts. Every animal on the planet we've tamed. Massive elephants and huge deadly rhinoceros. 
You can go to the zoo and see them. Because somebody tamed it and brought it back here. Horses, wild, powerful, massive horses. People ride. It used to be the way everybody got around. We can tame every beast of the field, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison, and we get our feelings hurt all the time. And we never learn how to truly fight the good fight. We never really, truly learn how to pick up the sword of the Spirit and do battle. We've got far too many Hezekiahs. We need more Davids. Because the victory for David was not won when he threw the slingshot. The victory for David was won when he said, The Lord saveth not with sword and with spear. And what he said? He said that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The battle is won when we do battle with God on our side. It doesn't matter what weapon's in your hand. That's what Hezekiah failed to remember. The Lord saves by the power of the Lord. Doesn't matter if you've got a sword, the best crafted thing on the entire country, or you've got a farmer's, you know, uh, a farmer's hoe in your hand. It doesn't matter what it is. The Lord can give you victory either way.